Welcome to the podcast of Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Please enjoy as Pastor John opens up the word. My goodness, once the kids go out and the youth, that really takes a chunk out of everybody here. Well, we are beginning a new book this morning. Are you ready, Ryan, to unveil it for the world? Huh? We're in the book of Jonah. And a a series that I've entitled Man on the Run. And that was intended to have a bit of a humorous connection. But turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Now over the last four weeks we completed a study on the call of God. The call to faith, which is salvation. The call to follow, which is that close, intimate walk with Jesus. That call to faithfulness, serving Him right where He has placed you. And the call to fruitfulness, which is exercising the unique gift that He has given to you individually. And we used the analogy often of God placing a phone call to each one of us. And our responsibility is to answer that call and be obedient to it. Well, as we begin our study this morning, we're going to look into the life of the prophet Jonah. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to see that God had a very specific call for Jonah to fulfill. So let's dive right in. Let's look at verse, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, wait a moment here. Something just doesn't quite add up. Jonah was a prophet of God, right? In other words, he was the voice of God. And you would expect a prophet of God to listen to the voice of God. And we see here that God specifically calls him to go to Nineveh. But rather than heeding the voice of God, he ran from God. And that's often what we do when we hear God calling us. God, I can't do what you're asking of me. You know, God, I'm afraid. Uh, You know, frankly, I don't like the people you're asking me to go minister to. You know, or I just plain don't want to do it. (laughs) But the book of Jonah is a very short book. It's only 48 verses. It's 1,328 verses words in total and yes I counted 
And we are studying this book because I've met a lot of people just like Jonah. People who run from God. People who are running from a calling of God upon their lives. People who are mad at God. People who are disappointed that God has let them down. And I've met people like Jonah who have failed God. And now they wonder, could God ever even use me again? And so we have this book, and it will speak to us. The book of Jonah will speak to anyone who is finding it hard to get along with irregular people. Jonah was an irregular person, and he had people in his life that were considered irregular. And you know what? I bet you have some irregular people in your lives. Maybe it's a cranky neighbor or a coworker that dislikes you or someone who has wronged you and you still carry a grudge against them. Or maybe it's just a group of people whom you may have a prejudice against. So this book will speak to you and it's up to us on how we're going to respond to it. Well, the first thing I want you to look at this morning is Jonah himself. So let's consider the man. And in verse 1 it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now, the text not only mentions the name of Jonah, but it also mentions the name of his father. And you have to understand that some people actually have a real hard time with this story. Some even have a hard time thinking of Jonah as an historical figure. And in dealing with this unusual Old Testament story, some have given various explanations for it. One, the book of Jonah is just a myth. It's in the category of Greek mythology, so this would be considered Hebrew mythology. And it's a cute little bedtime story that Jewish mums would tell you know, their kids before bed. And others would say, no, really, the book of Jonah is just an allegory. It's kind of mythical, mythical in essence, but it's allegorical in its purpose. And just as there was a great fish, it symbolized something in the story. And the great fish symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And Jonah symbolized the nation of Israel and Babylon would swallow up the Jews. And that's what this is all about. Others have said, the book of Jonah was a dream. Yes, there was this guy by the name of Jonah, but he had a dream of this episode. He got aboard a ship. Perhaps the figurehead was, of the ship was in the shape of a whale. <clears throat> and maybe it had too, many, too much late night pizza or with onions or something. And, and he was in this kind of dream state and he just dreamt this whole story. And he just recorded his own dream. These are explanations. Not very good or plausible explanations, mind you. But you need to understand that the book of Jonah is written in a very historical, straightforward historical narrative. 
It is written in the same form as books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. All of the Old Testament historical books were written in this fashion. This is what happened. This is what happened after that. The well-known and respected Jewish historian Josephus calls Jonah a historical record, as do other historical books from that time, not just biblical texts. But there's a much better way to end this argument, and I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and the very words of Jesus himself should close any doubts that we have on this issue. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now did you notice that Jesus refers to Jonah along with other notable historical figures? <clears throat> the queen of Sheba who lived... <clears throat> The men of Nineveh who lived. Solomon who was literal and lived. And then he also mentions as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. Now, don't you think it would be highly unusual to give a story that mixes myth and truth together, right? And if the book of Jonah is a lie or a myth, then Jesus is a liar because he regarded him as a literal prophet. Let's have some fun for a moment. I'll, I kind of reworked this story <clears throat> and how it would sound if Jonah was actually mythological. So what we just read, it would sound like this. So as mythological Jonah was three days and three nights in the mythological belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The real men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this real generation and condemn it because they, the real men of Nineveh, Nineveh I'll get it right eventually, repented at the preaching of mythologic, mythological Jonah, and indeed a greater than mythological Jonah is here. I mean, that would be utter nonsense. Jonah was a historical figure, 
In fact, his name is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 as a prophet of Israel who prophesied under King Jeroboam II who expanded the borders of Israel and Jonah, it says, predicted that he would expand the borders of Israel. So by the time of the writing of the book of Jonah, he must have been fairly famous and an established prophet in the land of Israel. <clears throat> now Jonah's name is interesting. The name Jonah means dove. And when you think of a dove, at least as a symbol, you think of gentleness. You think of compliance. Jesus said that we should be wise as serpents and gentle or harmless as doves. And I find it interesting that this is the name for this guy because he was very hard-hearted. He was very bigoted. He was very harsh in his treatment toward other people, as we'll see later on in this book. And he was very narrow-minded. Yet he was given the name Dove. But he sure didn't live up to his name. There is no other prophet in the Old Testament that was so nationalistic, patriotic towards the Jewish people, who had such a hatred for non-Jews or Gentile people than Jonah. And yet there is no other prophet in the Old Testament whose ministry was primarily and principally to non-Jews or Gentiles than Jonah. God must have an incredible sense of humor. But here's a guy who just loves his own people. He's strongly Jewish, hates all non-Jews, especially the Assyrians, the enemy of Israel, and yet God sends this man to them. That's his principal mission. That's what he's known for. And this shows us that the very thing that may be our deficit, God may turn around and make it our asset. The very thing that is the weakness in our lives, God may be out to correct it. And then it becomes a strength. Well, let's look at the mission of Jonah as described by God in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, there's a phrase right there in verse 1 that we often gloss right over. Did you see it? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Have you ever wondered, how did the word of the Lord come to Jonah? Was it an audible voice? Did the angel of the Lord appear in human form? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was it just a strong impression? And that's followed up by other wonderings. Does God still speak today? How can I tell the voice of God? How can I tell the difference between God's voice and my mother's words playing in my mind? <laughs> Or the voice of God in a guilty conscience? 
How can I know what is an impression from the Spirit of God rather than something coming from within myself? And we all struggle with that. You're not the first one to struggle. Everyone I've met who follows God has struggled with that question. And I know many of you have literally begged God to show Himself to them. I know I have. We long for God to be so unquestionably real to us. We're waiting for that Cecil B. DeMille moment from the Ten Commandments. Moses, Moses, Moses. (laughs) Go to Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. (laughs) I should have been probably a lot lower. but Or maybe there's a whole host of angels that jump up behind us and start singing what we're supposed to do. And in the Old Testament, sometimes God did speak very dramatically, didn't He? When God spoke to Moses, when He gave him the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel down below heard great thundering. And they knew God was up to something. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus transfigured before Peter, James, and John, there was a voice from heaven they all heard it it was audible this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased the voice of god was unmistakable but there were other times when god spoke less dramatically when elijah also was on that mount sinai years later He wanted to hear the voice of God in the earthquake and in the fire and in the wind, but God didn't use that. But in a very soft, gentle, or what we would call that still, small voice, God spoke. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's very quiet. Peter, who was one of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, he wrote in his letter, I was there. I heard that voice that came from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But then he follows it up by saying, we have something more sure than that. The word of prophecy. The Scripture. Something more sure than our subjective hearing. We have something we can look at objectively and that the voice of God through prophecy the scripture that God has given us and right now as we have his word open in front of us his spirit is present and able to speak to our hearts and through that still small voice he can speak to us but the real question is are we listening Well, the word of the Lord came clearly to Jonah. He knew what he was called to do. There was no mistake about it. But he certainly wasn't listening, even though that message was laid out clearly for him. He had already made up his mind what he was going to do, and it wasn't to obey. Now his commission was to go to that great city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. 
It was the hub of civilization at the time. And you may remember that that city was built by Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah, as we see in Genesis 10. But what you need to understand is that Nineveh was one of the great cities that was against the Jewish people. In fact, they came in and they regularly persecuted Israel. They were the sworn enemies of the Jewish people. Now you would think under these circumstances, a sworn enemy of the Jewish people, a prophet, a prophet who is devout and bigoted against anyone who is non-Jew, and God has a message of judgment for these enemies that Jonah would be absolutely chomping at the bit to cry out against them. No mercy, no grace, no love, just judgment. Well, I want you to flip ahead to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. We see Jonah's message in its entirety. And Jonah began, verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, here's his sermon, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was it. No illustration. No lovey-dovey stuff. Just, you guys are dead meat. <laughs> God is going to judge you in 40 days. That's your limit. And you'll be overthrown. So you think that Jonah, with his attitude towards these people, would be happy to just get mad at them in the name of God. God... I am in. <laughs> I want this job. But he doesn't do that. So go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 3. It says, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that this is kind of an odd phrase, don't you? I mean, especially for a prophet of God to flee from the presence of the Lord. By the time of Jonah, by the time the book was written, the Psalms had already been written. And he would have known Psalm 139, which we read this morning where David says, where can I flee from your presence? So what this is really saying to us is not that he's fleeing from God's presence, rather he's fleeing from the call of God on his life, from his God-given ministry. He's basically handing in his resignation. I quit, God. I don't want to follow you anymore. Friends, we need to understand that when we don't obey God's call on our lives, we are literally saying, God, I don't want to follow you anymore. I don't want to do it your way. I want to go my own way. 
But what is so incredible about this is how Jonah goes about it. He turns and runs the other direction. Look, when Moses didn't want the prophet gig, what did he do? He made excuses. I can't speak. They won't listen to me. Pharaoh won't like me. But in the end, he goes where God called him. Jeremiah was mad at God. He said, I'm never going to speak your name anymore. But then he said, but the word of God was inside me like a fire in my bones and I had to speak. But Jonah goes completely in the opposite direction. Now if you look at the map on the screen here, I want to give you a perspective. So, Jonah's here, and he's told to go to Nineveh, which isn't a, isn't a far trek. And the word, when he received that word, Nineveh was 500 miles due east of where he was. But where does he go? He goes all the way south to Joppa. And then he goes on a boat all the way over to Tarshish, which is in the southern tip of Spain. Like literally the end of the empire. And all I can say to this is why? Jonah, you're a prophet of God. Your sole job is to wait to hear from God and share that message to the people. And especially a message of judgment on people who are your sworn enemies. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all, does it? Well, I came up with a few possibilities. The first one is, it's too difficult a job. Okay, imagine for a moment walking into Nineveh alone. Nineveh had walls that were 100 feet high. They had 15 named gates, one for each of the Assyrian gods. They had 200 feet high towers. The walls were thick enough that they could have chariot races on top of them, three across. And then this tiny little prophet dude comes waltzing in and telling them that they're dead meat. God's going to judge you. It's almost laughable. It's embarrassing, but it's most definitely intimidating. Second idea I came up with is it's far too dangerous. Even God in His commission to Jonah calls this a great city. He tells Jonah to cry against it because of their great wickedness. Now, Nineveh was known for its brutality. History tells us about King Ashurbanipal, the grandson of Sennacherib that we see mentioned in Scripture. His custom was to take prisoners and he would rip their lips and hands off and let them bleed out. Another Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser II, 
He used to pile skulls of those that he had killed in front of the gates of the city. The prophet Nahum describes the brutality in Nahum 3, and I'm thinking that maybe Jonah didn't want to add his skull to that pile. And I could understand the sheer terror that may be attached to this call. But there's a third reason, and we're going to find out at the end of the book, that this was actually the reason. Jonah knew that God was good. Jonah knew that God was good and he was merciful and that God was loving and likes to forgive bad people like the ones that Jonah hates. Flip ahead to Jonah chapter 3. The end of Jonah chapter 3. Beginning at verse 10 and moving into chapter 4. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, Then God saw their works, and they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He said that He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Did you see that? Jonah is mad because God didn't judge them. Verse 2, So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? As if to say, God, I told you so. Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is Better for me to die than to live. Is that not amazing to you? A prophet of God is mad because God is so loving and gracious and forgiving that He would actually give these people a second chance. Now, before we throw Jonah completely under the bus here, I want to put a modern twist on this. Let's say it's World War II. And the word of the Lord comes to a Jewish rabbi in Brooklyn, New York, and says, Go to Nazi Germany. I have a message that I want you to bring to these people. You may very well read that the rabbi went down to Manhattan. And he got on board a ship and went to Hawaii to flee the presence of the Lord. Do you see the connection? It would be inconceivable in the rabbi's mind as it was inconceivable for Jonah to go to his enemies because God might forgive them. But the point is, you have a guy holding on to bitterness more than forgiveness. Now there's a few lessons to be learned at this point. And the first point I want you to notice here is sometimes it's difficult to watch God bless other people other than us. We want God to be good to me. 
We want God to give me a break. We want God to bless me. Yet the Bible says to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. But don't you find it's a lot easier to weep with those that weep than rejoice with those that rejoice? You're hurting. Let me come alongside you. Let me encourage you. But when someone rejoices, wow, God just blessed me with a brand new car. And what's our response? Well, praise God. <laughs> That's just wonderful. Second point we need to notice is you can run, but you cannot hide. Jonah is about to find that no matter where he runs, God is still there. But it brings up a question. Are any of us here related to Jonah? Has there been a, a commission that you feel God is calling you to? Some area of involvement you have postponed? God's been trying to get a hold of your life to use you, but you keep running away. Third point we can draw from this is bitterness blinds you from the truth. You're bitter. You're prejudiced. You're, you know, you're entrenched. You just won't let go. You can't see the truth. And even though Jonah knew he couldn't flee from the presence of God, he still made a conscious choice to say, I'm going to leave your presence. Why? Because he's blinded to a very obvious truth. Truth that bitterness, hatred, the refusal to forgive shackles a person and blinds them from the truth. And now I'm going to take you to a fourth and final point here, and that is the misery of Jonah. Most of us already know some of the consequences of the rest of this story. The storm, the great fish, the crying out to God, etc., etc. But there are other consequences that are woven into the fabric of these three verses that I want you to notice before we close. I want you to notice the phrase in verse 3. Take a look at it. It says, He went down. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship after paying his fare. And he goes down into the gullet of the fish as we will see later on. Any time you go away from God's plan, you go down. From the world's perspective, you may be going up. You're getting away from that tyrannical rule of your life. You're expressing your freedom. You're being liberated. You're becoming upwardly mobile. But if you're running from God, you're going down, not up. Well, it's another phrase regarding Jonah's misery here in the same verse. Take a look at it. It says he paid the fare. 
He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare. Now, can you imagine Jonah? He's down at the dock. He takes out his wallet. He starts giving out the money needed for the ticket. He pays the fare. He gets aboard the ship. But does he ever make it to Tarshish? Nope. But he paid the full price of the ticket, right? He didn't get his money's worth. He didn't get refunded. He threw him over. He paid the full fare and full price of the ticket, but he never made it to his destination. And here's the point I want to make here. And if you're taking notes, this is what you want to write down. Whenever you go your own way, you never get to your destination but you always pay the full fare. Whenever you go God's way, you'll always get to His destination and He'll pay the fare. Let me say that again. Whenever you go your own way, you never get to your destination, but you always pay the full fare. Whenever you go God's way, you'll always get to His destination and He'll pay the fare. Jonah illustrates the first part of this principle. He paid, but never made it to Tarshish, never arrived at that destination. But I want to look at that principle from the other side of that illustration. See, there was a woman in the Bible and her name was Jochebed. She was the mother of Moses. And in a time of persecution, all the Hebrew male children were being killed at birth. And she put Moses in a basket, floated him down the Nile and said, God, you take care of him. And the basket was found by the maidens of the daughter of Pharaoh. She had no children and she decided to raise Moses as her own. But you know, she thought to herself, you know, I'm a princess. I can't raise him like this. Tell you what, maidens, you go out and you find a Hebrew woman to raise this little child for me. So they find a Hebrew woman who just happens to be the mother of Moses, Jochebed. And Pharaoh's daughter says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 9, take this child away and nurse him for me. Get this, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Listen, that's cool. The mom got paid for being a mom of her own kid by the government by Pharaoh so going God's way God paid the fare and she arrived at the destination look the consequences of going your own way are not always readily apparent at first you may run away from the will of God and think you're getting away with it I want you to think about this. Jonah walked some 60 miles from Gath Heifer to Joppa. No one stopped him. 
Guess he's getting away with it. He finds a boat. He pays the fare. He goes down into it. The boat launches out. No problem. And maybe he's even thinking aboard the ship, hey, I'm getting away with this. God's not stopping me. Just you wait, Jonah. In just a little bit, God's going to get your attention. So the consequences of sin may not be readily apparent at first, but sin always catches up and it always finds us out. Let me ask you, is there something in your life right now that you're running from? You know that God has called you to something or maybe even from something. And yet you are turning and running away from his gentle call. Or maybe you've been hurt and you're holding on to a tremendous weight of bitterness and unforgiveness. Maybe you're afraid of what it is that God is calling you or has called you to do. What does God have to do to get your attention this morning? I want to read a poem to you as we close this morning. It says, The will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you, where the arms of God cannot support you, where the riches of God cannot supply your needs, where the power of God cannot endow you. The will of God will never take you where the Spirit of God cannot work through you, where the wisdom of God cannot teach you, where the army of God cannot protect you, where the hands of God cannot mold you. The will of God will never take you where the love of God cannot enfold you, where the mercies of God cannot sustain you, where the peace of God cannot calm your fears where the authority of God cannot overrule for you. The will of God will never take you where the comfort of God cannot dry your tears, where the word of God cannot feed you, where the miracles of God cannot be done for you, where the omnipresence of God cannot find you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that you are showing us here already in the book of Jonah. Lord, that it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter where we go, you're there. We may walk 10,000 miles away from you, but it's only one step back. You promised that you would never leave nor forsake us. And Lord, how often we look at tasks and we are bound by bitterness or fear. Lord, the call that you have for each one of us is so clear 
And Lord, we just need to be obedient to that and not afraid, but willing to step out and trust you, knowing that your arms are there to uphold us. And the will of God will never take us where your grace cannot keep us. And so Lord, I just pray right now, wherever it is, whatever it is that we are wrestling with, whether it be a fear of man, whether it be the thinking the task may be too big, may it be past bitterness or concern or frustration in our lives or just a stubborn hard heart, Lord, I just pray your Holy Spirit will be working right now in each one of the hearts that's listening in this morning. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you want to work in and through us. You don't need us. That you've called us. And because you've called us, that means that we're special. We have a purpose you have a plan for us and a reason for us to be here. And Lord, we give you that rule and reign in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.